0: Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org Let's turn to Daniel chapter 8. We're pretty far into this book. I'm Happy to see that we're already in the eighth chapter, but it's getting more difficult. So, we're going to read about Daniel's second vision. So, the first half of the book were the narrative stories out of the court of Babylon great Bible stories Daniel in the lion's den, the three Hebrew children cast into the fiery furnace, and it's those great stories. But in the middle of the book, it changes. We're really now in apocalyptic literature, as it's called. That is, it's prophetic in nature, but it's given to us in signs and symbols, mysterious language, phrases, numbers, and things like that. And here is a perfect example of what we're going to read this morning. So this is Daniel's second vision. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Yulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. Last. I saw the man charging westward and northward. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns." And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. That is the single horn on the male goat. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them, that is, out of one of the four horns, came a little horn. Now, you remember the little horn back in the previous chapter, chapter 7? This is not the same little horn. This is a different little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it. Now we're going to read a lot of its. This is talking about the little horn. A host will be given to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand and three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. You might be thinking that you don't envy me right now (laughs) to uh, bring a sermon on this. I'm actually excited to do so. So what is interesting in this right off remember going back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, chapter 2, and then Daniel's vision in chapter 7, we had the four world empires given to us, first of all, as a statue, a metallic statue with a head of gold, a breastplate of silver, a breast of silver arms, and so on, representing the four great world empires that were going to come into history, into reality, and become very important in the history of the world, revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, who was then king of Babylon. And remember, he's the first empire. The interpretation, Daniel said to him, you are the head of gold. So the head of gold on his statue represented Babylon, the Babylonian empire. So the first of the four is Babylon. But then we're... Well, what is the second one? We're saying the second one was the Medo-Persian Empire that took over the Babylonian Empire and then followed the Grecian Empire, followed by Rome, the Roman Empire. And that's confirmed for us in Daniel's vision in chapter 7. Only he sees four beasts. He doesn't see a beautiful, glowing, uh, mighty statue of these wonderful metals. He sees it entirely different as beasts, ferocious, violent. What is revealed in the the eighth chapter here is empire number two and empire number three. The focus of this vision has to do with the Medo-Persian empire and the Grecian empire. Well, how do you know that? Well, look at Verses 20 and 21, because we have the interpretation of the ram and the goat. And I'm telling you this now, just to clear it, that this is who this is about. And as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece. This is Alexander the Great, the first great king. That ruled Greece. So, just keeping that in your mind, this is who this is about. So, first of all, I want you to note the time and the setting of this vision. Daniel gives it to us in the first couple of verses. The time and the setting. This occurred in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar was one of the kings of Babylon. So this is still during the kingdom of Babylon that Daniel has this vision, but it does not pertain to Babylon. In fact, none of the visions will pertain to Babylon from now on. It's now empire number two and empire number three that's in view. Notice it's in the third year of Belshazzar. That's either 550 or 547. These are the two dates that kept coming up. In the research that I did, and so somewhere between 550 and 547, that's B.C., before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. So this is in the ancient, real ancient world. Daniel says that this vision appeared to him after that which appeared to me at the first. That's a reference to the vision that he had in the seventh chapter. Now he he tells us where where he had this vision, but we don't really believe that he was transported actually to this location, but that he went to this location in the vision. Where was he? He saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital. This is a, a major city in the kingdom of Elam at that time, but it later became the, the royal city of the Persian Empire. The kings resided here. It's a very important city. You find it in the book of Esther. This was the capital of the Persian rule at that time. Very important, about 200 miles from Babylon. And then he, he gets very specific that he was on the bank of the Ulai Canal, which apparently was a man-made artificial canal, very large, and it passed by the city of Susa on the northeast side. So just a few details about that. So this is where he was. He defines the time and the setting. So it's, it's very historical. This is not something that's just made up in the Bible. The Bible often gives us these These historical records by defining who was the king at that time, some details about the setting. So we know this is a real historical event that is being described here, namely Daniel's vision. Now let's come to the content of the vision, verses 3 to 12. The content. So again, he sees animals. He sees the ram and then a male goat. A ram is a sheep, a male sheep. Big horn, ram, perhaps. And we're told who they were. That's why I mentioned that. So we're referring to the Medes and the Persians. Now see how this works itself out. So these empires are not described now as the predatory beasts of chapter 7. Not the leopard, not the the lion or the bear. Now this is an animal from the flock. A sheep and a goat. So the ram has naturally two horns, but this fits beautifully with the representation of the Medo-Persian Empire. We have two powers. Apparently the Medo kingdom, the the, Medes, the kingdom of the Medes, is more ancient than the Persian Empire. It was there before Persia rose in power. That's why it says of the horn that it came up last. That Notice that the two horns are not the same length. One is longer than the other one. So the longer one, it's believed, designates Persia because it was the dominant empire that took over the Mede empire and absorbed them and it became the Medes and the Persians. So they came together and formed a power. But the Medes were there first. They're more ancient. So it says that the longer horn came up last. That is the Persian Empire. Hopefully that makes sense the way I'm explaining it. Now what what did the ram do? It charges westward, northward, and southward in other words, in all directions, it doesn't say eastward at this point. This is the, the conquests of the Medes and the Persians. This is talking about how it grew, how it extended its power. And there was no beast, no other kingdom that could stand against them, that could resist them. So wherever they tried to conquer, they were successful. So these other peoples, the neighboring uh kingdoms regions they just fell to the power of the Medes and the Persians and they were taken into their kingdom this is how the kingdom grew no one could none could be rescued from his power he did as he pleased and became great an expression of the sovereignty of the of an earthly ruler he does what he pleases. So there's the Persian Medo-Persian Empire. it's ram, it's making conquests, it's growing, it's extending itself. this is over a period of time. Now he comes to this male goat. Notice how Alexander the Great's, Kingdom is described here. And th- this fits perfectly with the nature of his conquests. He came from the west. I'm, I'm in verse 5. He comes across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. So he is gliding along with great speed. This male goat and a goat is a wild goat's more fierce than a sheep. So this is why Alexander's kingdom is described as a goat, a male goat. He's powerful, he's conquering with rapidity. Alexander's empire was was a world empire greater than the the previous of the Medes and the Persians, and he conquered the world, they believe, in about 12 years. He was king of the world, basically, the then known world, Alexander. I'll give you a date for his, his rule, 336 to 325, that is when he was conquering. notice he's described as a conspicuous horn between his eyes so this is a this is the unicorn just one horn on the goat but this represents the king a single ruler a great ruler was alexander you know what does he do he charges at the ram with full speed and with fury, he attacked the Persian Empire. Apparently, the Persian Empire had a great army of many, hundreds of thousands. And Alexander the Great's army was about 60,000, 40 to 60,000 in the numbers that I came across. And yet he defeated the Medes and the Persians. He was a fierce warrior great army overcoming the medes and the persians and within 4 years he had captured that kingdom he had taken over the medo persian empire alexander the great but look what happens to him first of all he broke both the horns of the ram so that that's indicating the defeat of that empire that he broke both the horns But then notice what happens to him at the height of his power. The ram had no power to stand before him. He was cast down to the ground and trampled on and so on. The goat became exceedingly great and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. That's speaking about the sudden early death of Alexander the Great. He died around the age 32 or 33. It's interesting. So his, uh, his life extended. He only got to rule two years beyond uh, after conquering the world. And then he died in 323. So his rule was 336 to 325, and then he died two years later, 323. They kind of, they know these dates. Now, after Alexander's death, what was to become of his empire? Well, it's, it's put simply here, but actually quite a bit transpired between his death and what we read uh, here in the text about the four horns that come up in the place of the one horn that broke. But let's go right to the four horns. And instead of it, the single horn, came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. I mean, they were going to rule to the four corners of the Alexander Empire, the Grecian Empire. Now, who are these four horns? Well, this is all confirmed by history that his kingdom was broken up into four parts and was given, the rule was given to four of his generals. The name of one was Cassander, he was given the Greece, the Grecian and Macedonia area to rule. Um, Lysimachus was given Thrace and Asia Minor. Um, Ptolemy was given Egypt, which also covered Palestine, and Seleucus was north in Syria and even east into Mesopotamia and that area. Those were the names of his generals. The focus now, really, after laying out this basic framework of what happened between the two empires, who takes over who, the focus is now on a little horn. Out of one of them, that is, out of one of the successors that ruled in the place of Alexander, we're not told here which one it is, but we do know who it is from history, came out of the Seleucus empire over Syria. It was one of their kings that is being referred to now. It's not referring to Seleucus himself. This is a figure that comes later in the history. In fact, we're going now to the second century BC. Notice what it says about this little horn. That is, he's small. He's got a small beginning. He's He's Nobody's really paying attention to him because there's nothing great about him at this point. But he grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and notice, toward the glorious land. That's referring to where the Jews came from. That's speaking of Israel, which... Ezekiel tells us twice uh, in his book, in chapter 20 of Ezekiel, that this land was given to his people, a land flowing with milk and honey, the greatest and most glorious of all lands. That's how it's described twice in Ezekiel 20. So notice his attention is toward the glorious land he's going to capture Palestine and take it away from the Ptolemies who were ruling in the south, this little horn. He's got his eyes set on it, the glorious land. Now, in verses 10 through 12, we come to a very difficult section of, in fact, of the whole book of Daniel particularly verse 12. Because we have some metaphors here. And the word host is used five times. Now, host uh, is the word for army. But in the Bible, it's used about angels, the heavenly host. It's also used about stars, the planetary host. In the heavens. They're also called the host. It's also used of Israel. God spoke of his people as his host, as be his earthly host, his earthly army. Actually, that phraseology is used in the book of Exodus when they're about to leave after the plagues and go out of Egypt into the wilderness. The difficulty here is understanding which host he means. And does every instance of this word host five times in these three verses, is it referring to the same one? Well, this this is a, a difficult passage because of that. I want to say about the little horn right off, because I want to start using the name. It is uh, Thomas Newton, who I told you he wrote that book on the prophecies that I have, an old writer. He said this, both Jewish and Christian interpreters, ancient and modern. They take this to refer to Antiochus IV, king of Syria great enemy and persecutor of the Jews. This is who, I haven't come across anybody who takes a different view. Josephus believed this, so I have a, a statement from him, the Talmud. They link this little horn to this individual in history by the name of Antiochus IV, a king of Syria we're going to see what he did why it zeroes in on him he's actually the old testament antichrist if there is such a thing i mean this this was a terrible wicked ruler but notice what it says about him that he grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars Now that's interesting that it adds stars. So it may be at this, at least in this verse, it it could be a focus on the the heavens above the host. And it threw them down to the ground and trampled on them. What, What is being told to us here about him is it's it's expressing the man's pride and his arrogance and his ambition to be somebody great. He's reaching for the stars. This is where he's placing himself. He exalts himself. And the language kind of it sounds familiar a little bit to the fall of Satan out of Isaiah 14. If you remember the description there of the son of the morning, Lucifer, and what his problem was... You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. So it's this kind of an attitude that Antiochus has. Now he gave himself the name Epiphanes. So when you read about him, you'll see that he's called Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth. But Epiphanes was not his real name, he gave himself that name. And Epiphanes means a manifestation of God. And this is how he saw himself. He saw himself as the incarnation of Zeus. Zeus was the chief god in the Greek pantheon of deities. So this is a man who exalted himself, placed himself among the stars of heaven. But the idea of what is said here about casting some of the stars down and trampling upon them, I I don't understand this. I really don't know what that means. Verse 11 is a little easier. The horn became great, even as great as the prince of the host. The prince of the host is God. So he's... Putting himself on equality with God is what he what, what they're telling us, borne out by the name he gave himself. Epiphanies. Now notice what, what happens. So he's exalting himself to be a God and The regular burnt offering was taken away from him, that is, from the prince of the host. This is something that he wanted to do with the Jews. He wanted to bring the Greek culture and Greek religion to Palestine, and he wanted the Jews to submit to being Hellenized by him. He wanted to change their religion. He wanted to get rid of Judaism. So when he captured Palestine and Jerusalem, he put an end to what was going on in the temple. This reference to the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, meaning God. The regular burnt offering is referring to the daily sacrifice that was made on the altar a burnt offering every morning and every late afternoon, every evening. This is how the presence of Yahweh was maintained in the temple. They had a constant burnt offering going. And this comes out of Exodus 29. This is where Moses was told to do this, to take a one-year-old lamb and sacrifice him as a burnt offering every morning and every evening. Antiochus put an end to that. He ended that. But he made an edict that they couldn't make any more sacrifices, drink offerings. He stopped the observance of the Sabbath. I mean, this guy did everything he could to end the practice of Judaism. And then it adds, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. I'm still in verse 11. So he ended the daily sacrifice, and with that all the other sacrifices. So he took out, he made it, he outlawed the observance of the festivals, the Jewish festivals. And then it says that the place of the sanctuary, that is, this is how the temple in Jerusalem is being described. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now that doesn't mean that it was destroyed. He did not dismantle the temple, he didn't pull it down. It means he overthrew it and he treated it as if it was to be totally despised and thrown away. No longer fit for use. What he did. He totally polluted it. Now here's what he did. So when he came into Jerusalem and started to take control... He did an outrageous thing. And this is known in history as the, des- the abomination of desecration. He went into the temple, set up a statue of Zeus that was in his own image, and an altar to Zeus, and he killed a pig in the temple. So you know what God thought about swine? Swine. This was a total desecration of the holy place in Jewish history. No one had ever dared to do anything like this, but Antiochus Epiphanes IV did. Now, verse 12 is really, really difficult. It, that is, Antiochus, he became great, You know, that's verse 11. Verse 12. And a host will be given to it... A host of what? I I don't know. I can't explain it. Hosts will be given to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. So it seems as though some army was given to the horn that was able then to bring an end to the sacrificial system in the temple because of some unspecified sin of the Jewish people. That's kind of what this may be saying. Now this, I get, it will throw truth to the ground. Antiochus burned the scrolls of the Torah. in the repudiation of Judaism. He burned them. This is the law of Moses. So he threw truth to the ground. Whose truth? Well, God's truth expressed in the written law, which was the basis of Jewish worship, the worship of Yahweh. He threw truth to the ground. And then it says this, it will act... And prosper. So he's getting away with this. In spite of all that, the the unbelievable wickedness, how is he getting away with this? How long is this going to continue? So that question, verses 13 and 14, this is my third point. And here you have a conversation between two holy ones. It's two angels. And they're discussing this. And one of them says to the other, how long is this going to continue? That the temple is going to be desecrated. That the worship of Yahweh is being halted. So imagine, every, the Jews have the temple, this is the rebuilt temple of Solomon that was built upon the return of the exiles to their land under Cyrus. The book of Nehemiah tells us about that. He sent Nehemiah back and they were engaged in rebuilt, reconstructing the walls of Jerusalem and building the temple. So a rebuilt temple, second temple is desecrated by this man and the worship of Yahweh stops. How long? How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, that is the daily sacrifice, morning and evening sacrifice, representative of the whole sacrificial system, that daily sacrifice that was made, along with the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Notice how it's describing the temple. The temple has been laid waste. It's been trampled underfoot by this evil ruler. How long? Now we have a number, one of these mysterious numbers of Daniel. Look at it. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now there's two ways to read this. The first way is to see evening and morning is referring to a day, one day. So it could be 2,300 days, which is about six years and four months. Another way to read it is how many daily sacrifices are going to be missed? 2,300 evenings and mornings. So if you read it like that, as to how long the daily sacrifice is not going to be made, how many sacrifices will be missed, 2,300 of them. So in order to figure out how long that is, you divide that number in half, because two per day, that's 1,150 days. And that comes out to three years and two months. I think that that is the way it's to be read because here's here's the facts: Antiochus desecrated the temple, sacrificed the pig on the altar in 167 BC. 167. Now you know what happened because of what he did to the Jews. And he wanted to exterminate them, not only exterminate their religion, but them. If they rebelled against him and would not comply, they were put to death. So he was guilty of killing thousands of Jews. Isn't it interesting how God's people have been persecuted like that throughout history? There have always been those who wanted to get rid of the Jewish people. I wonder who's driving that evil. So he he began his desecration in 167. But the Jews rose up against it. He provoked a revolt led by a family, a priestly family, and one of the sons of the high priest was Judah. This is Judah Maccabees, the hammer. And this is when the Jewish revolt took place. And... They were in the minority, and they conquered the army of Antiochus. This is what's behind the celebration of Hanukkah in December of every year. They are remembering the defeat of Antiochus by Judas Maccabees and his brothers and army. The Maccabean revolt led to the recovery of the temple and the temple was rededicated. It was cleansed of the pollution of Antiochus and rededicated in 164 B.C. in the month of December. And they say even it was December 25th. Really interesting. How long was that? Josephus tells us. Is from Josephus, first century Jewish historian. Josephus, speaking of Antiochus, says that he spoiled the temple and he put a stop to the daily sacrifice for three years and six months. So this number, it's not exact, it's approximate, it would seem. But it tells, they're telling how long it was going to last three years and some months. Is the word of God how long Antiochus is going to have control of the Jewish temple. So what is is the point of this? Well, there's there's a very powerful point that comes out of this. This is a reminder to us uh, and to God's people of all ages, that is, throughout the ages, as well as all ages, but throughout the ages, that God has a limit on man's evil. God has boundaries around the sin of man. How long he allows evil to continue and how far he allows that evil to go. God controls that. 2,300 days he's going to have the power to do this to my people. But then he's done. He's finished. And this man came to a sudden death, Antiochus, by the way. So this is, this is a, a beautiful thing to remember. We can, we can apply it also to when we go through trials in life that God has a time period for it. He knows what we need when we need to be tested, when we need to go through some pain in our life. He has those boundaries marked out when it begins, when it ends. Nothing is forever for God's people except eternity with him. Pain and suffering has its limitations and God controls that. That's part of his sovereign control over the universe. Daniel, uh, not Daniel, David and Psalm The first two verses of Psalm 13, David asks four times, How long, O Lord? And then, the very fourth time, he says, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So it's not unusual for God's people to want to know how long their trials are going to last. But from here, from this text, we can see God has parameters around it. He defines the time. There's always light at the end of the tunnel for God's people. Jeremiah said in Lamentations in the third chapter, the Lord will not cast off forever. Thank the Lord for that. That's never going to happen to God's people. We're never going to be cast off forever by him. In the meantime, though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of, of his steadfast love. Second chapter of the book of Revelation, here's a a beautiful example of what I'm talking about, verse 10. I I would put this as my cross-reference to 2,300 days. He's going to be able to have control of the temple in Jerusalem and stop the sacrifice and all of that. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the church. The church at, I believe it's Smyrna. Suffering Church. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. The Lord has given his people... He's letting them know what's coming. That that you may be tested. So God has a purpose in this. The devil is behind it. He's going to have you sent to prison. This is so that you might be tested. And notice and for ten days you will have tribulation. There it is, ten days. God has parameters on this evil, how long they're going to stay in prison. But he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. What a promise. That's our God. He's in control. He defines the time for The trial of his people. He had perfect control over this entire thing. Though it was so out of control, it would seem from the Jewish standpoint that this happened to them. When you think about the Holocaust, the worst of all that came to them in the last century, how do we explain that? That is very troubling. And yet the Lord is in full control of everything that occurs even with the evil of man. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.